Will you turn in your Bibles to the very first page, Genesis chapter 1? And these brothers have some Bibles, so as they make their way toward the back, get their attention if you need one, and they'll get a copy to you that you can keep as our gift to you. And we always say that the Bibles are marked at the passage we're considering, but since today and for many weeks to follow, we're going to be considering the first page. I don't know whether marked there or not. It shouldn't matter much. You should be able to find it. The last book of your Bible, the book of Revelation, is filled with images related to the end of time. One of those images is in Revelation chapter 6, and it's of four horsemen. And many commentators refer, refer to them as the four horsemen of the apocalypse. In recent years, a group of four men have risen to claim the title, the four horsemen of the non-apocalypse. These four are Richard Dawkins, Christopher Hitchens, Sam Harris, and Daniel Dennett. They are the most vocal representatives of what is called the new atheism, which is evangelistic in its zeal to warn people of the dangers of religion and to convert them to atheism. And they're having some success, it appears. A Harris poll indicated that belief in God declined by nearly 10% from 2009 to 2013. And a full 32% say they do not believe in God or are not certain there is a God. So it appears that the four horsemen and their friends in the new atheism are having an effect. In part, I believe because they sound so very, very intelligent. I think that Christopher Hitchens, he died in 2011, and Richard Dawkins sound especially smart because they have British accents. And a British accent makes your perceived IQ go up by 20 points at least. I heard one American say, if I go to England, will they think I'm smart because of my American accent? But alas, as we saw last week, people know that there is a God. And intelligent though, in fact, they may be, they are rendered foolish in denying him. And so I'm going to quote a bit and take some time to quote a bit both today and in uh, the weeks to come. Some of those who deny the existence of God and show the foolishness that follows from it. Atheist evangelist Richard Dawkins said, My own feeling is that a human society based simply on the genes law of universal ruthless selfishness. Now, let me just stop there. It's a mouthful. But he's speaking of the genes selfishness, that genes have selfishness. And he goes on to say, if that were all we had, it would be a very nasty society in which to live. But unfortunately, however much we may deplore something, it does not stop it from being true. Be warned that if you wish, as I do, to build a society in which individuals cooperate generously and unselfishly towards a common goal, you can expect little help from biological nature. Let us try to teach generosity and altruism, because we are born selfish. Well, Richard Dawkins is right that we are born selfish. But he defines that problem not as a spiritual issue, since he doesn't believe in the spiritual, but rather as a genetic problem. Genes are 
according to Dawkins, selfish. And thus the title of his book, The Selfish Gene. Creation scientist Edgar Andrews, who also has a British accent, responds, What Dawkins doesn't seem to realize is that if his atheism is true, there would be no moral high ground to occupy. If our world is the product of our moral forces, and if man is simply cosmic flotsam scattered on the shores of time, then morality, including Dawkins' longed-for generosity and altruism, simply does not exist. Nothing can be good and nothing evil. Right and wrong are concepts devoid of meaning, and anyone who passes moral judgment dwells not on moral high ground, but in cuckoo land. Dawkins' belief is based on the bizarre assumption that genes somehow possess moral qualities and objectives. In reality, of course, the term selfish gene is no more than shorthand for Darwinian survival of the fittest. But even so, how can an amoral process lead to moral consequences like human selfishness? The only consistent account of human nature provided by atheistic evolution is that there is no such thing as moral behavior. All kinds of behavior, good and bad, are simply survival mechanisms in disguise. I just pause here to briefly give a personal anecdote from my time in college. In my first few years of college, I had to take a number of science classes, and in one of those classes, I distinctly remember the biology teacher talking about atoms and then protons and electrons and talking about how they attract or are repelled and using terms like they like to do this and that. Electrons like to do this and protons like to do that. And I remember as a young student going, how do they like to do anything? And yet, there's a reason that that kind of language is used. Selfish genes and protons and electrons that like to do things. It's because they have to find an animating principle for life and morality somehow. But it can't be with God and the spiritual on their atheistic assumptions. So moral and intellectual qualities are ascribed to all moral things like genes and atoms. One of the other four horsemen of the new atheism is the late Christopher Hitchens. He debated Christian pastor Douglas Wilson a few years ago. And here's a fairly lengthy excerpt from, their, from one of their exchanges. Pastor Wilson says, Your book and your statements in this debate thus far are filled with fierce denunciations of various manifestations of immorality. And I simply want to know the basis of your denunciations. You preach like some hot gospeler with a floppy leather-bound book and all. I know the book's not the Bible, and so all I want to know is what the book is and why it has anything to do with me. Why should anyone listen to your attacks against weird beards in the Middle East or fundamental Baptists from Virginia? On your terms, you're just a random collection of protoplasm. Noisier than most, but no more authoritative than any, which is to say, not at all. To which Hitchens responds with a number of words, I'm only going to give you a few of them because he only, in one line, in each of his responses, actually attempts any response at all to what Wilson said. So in relevant part, Hitchens says, On the question of the origin of ethical imperatives, I believe them to be derived from innate human solidarity. 
That is, what gives us the command, the imperative, to do things right rather than wrong is because of this thing he calls innate human solidarity. Wilson says, but you have no basis for confronting evil. When you say that a certain practice is evil, you have to be prepared to tell us why it's evil. You say that ethical imperatives are, quote, derived from innate human solidarity. A host of difficult questions immediately arise, which is perhaps why atheists are generally so coy about trying to answer this question. Derived by whom? Is this derivation authoritative? Do the rest of us ever get to vote on which derivations represent true, innate human solidarity? Do we ever get to vote on the authorized derivers? On what basis is innate human solidarity authoritative? If someone rejects innate human solidarity, are they being evil? Are they just a mutation in the inevitable changes that the evolutionary process requires? What is the precise nature of human solidarity? What's easier to read, the Book of Romans or innate human solidarity? Are there differences in denominations that read from the Book of Innate Human Solidarity? Which one is right and who says? Hitchens again is a response. He responds with a number of words, but the only relevant sentence in a couple of paragraphs is this. Ordinary morality is innate, in my view. Wilson responds, innate is not a synonym for authoritative. Why does anyone have to obey any particular prompting from within? And which internal prompting is in charge of sorting out all the other competing promptings? And why? The tangled yarn of innate and conflicting moralities found within the billions of humans alive today also has to be sorted out and systematized. Why do you get to do it and then come around and tell us how we must behave? Who died and left you king? And according to you, this innate morality of ours is found in a creature, humanity, that is a distant blood cousin of various bacteria, aquatic mammals, and colorful birds in the jungle. Your world, entire worldview has evolution as a key foundation stone, and evolution means nothing if not change. You believe that virtually every species has morphed out of another one, and when we change, as we must, all, our, our, all of our innate morality changes with us, right? I'm almost done. Hitchens says... I answer your question by making the pragmatic observation that if we surrendered to our lower instincts all the time, there would be no language in which to write this argument between us and no society in which we could find an audience. Let me just stop. What he's saying is it's a good thing that we don't do all the evil, bad things we could, even if I can't define what evil really is, because if we did, we wouldn't be here. That's what he's saying. The struggle, he goes on to say, to assert what is positive in our human capacity is an arduous task. If I take myself, I find that I derive pleasure from giving blood for free and also from contemplating the deaths of my clerical fascist enemies in the ranks of Al-Qaeda and even from the misfortunes of others who do not threaten me. Wilson then responds, I have been asking you to provide a warrant for morality, given your atheism. And you've mostly responded with assertions that atheists can make what some people call moral choices. Well, sure, But what I've been after is what rational warrant they can give for calling one choice moral and another not moral. You finally appealed to, quote, innate human solidarity, a phrase that prompted a series of pointed questions from me. In response, you now tell us that we have an innate predisposition to both good and wicked behavior, but we're still stuck. What I want to know still is what warrant you have for calling some behavior good and others wicked. If both are innate then what distinguishes them? 
What could be wrong with just flipping a coin? Friends, when you start with anything else other than God, this is what you're reduced to. Denial of the God who made us renders us foolish, no matter how intelligent we may sound. And last week, we began a series in the opening chapters of God's book to us, the Bible. And in the opening words and first paragraphs, the Bible sets us and all of life in proper context. And that proper context begins where a true view of the world must. It begins with God, with the creator himself. One commentator said this, At the beginning, scripture introduces us at once to God in the essential fullness of his being. All prefatory matter is excluded. It's to God and God alone that we are brought. It is he who is the subject of the creation account. We hear him through the divine revelation, penetrating earth's silence, shining into the primordial darkness with the sole intent of creating a sphere in which he might display his sovereignty, incomparability, and power. And he makes himself known through these works of his creative will. And then he quotes the psalmist, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Today and over the next few weeks, we are going to look at the very first verse in the word of God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Let's bow together and ask the Lord to help us. Our God, our creator, the one who made us and the one whom we were made to know. We ask you to help us. We ask you to help us to sort through the morass of false teaching that is current and ubiquitous in our day. We help us, ask you to help us in these next weeks and months together to be able to see the truth that you have set forth in the very first pages of your word so that all of life could be built upon that foundation. Lord, help us to be people who emerge As those who view all of reality, all of life, every decision we make, every circumstance we endure through the lens of what you tell us about yourself and ourselves and your world in Holy Scripture, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, each week we insert an outline for the message in your program. So if you could find that, if you haven't already, then I encourage you to take a look at it. Because we're going to look at four points together. This initial message about the subject of the Bible, the subject of all of life, and certainly the subject of the very first verse in the Bible, God himself. And so I say in your outline, first of all, God is self-existent. God is self-existent. The novelist and science fiction writer Ian Banks said of his own atheism, I'm an evangelical atheist. Religions are cultural artifacts. We make God, not the other way around. Religion is one way to explain the universe, but eventually science comes along to explain it. Now notice what he says, we made God. This is a very common claim made by the new atheists that it's not God who made us in his image, but rather we have made up God in our own image. 
And so they asked the question, if you believe in God, then who made God? And it's a question they wield as a sword that they think cuts the legs from under the biblical worldview. Who made God? And, of course, since God was not made, then the right answer to the question, who made God, is that God has always been, and no one made God. But they pounce on this to say, as Ian Banks did, we made God, as in, we made God up in our minds. But that's really not so tidy an answer after all. Because to say, we made God, invites the question, who made us? Professor Andrews, in his book by that title, Who Made God? gives a little humorous encounter between an inquirer, a theist, that is, one who believes in God, and two atheists. The inquirer begins by asking the three, excuse me interrupting, but can you tell me who made everything? And the theist says, yes, God made everything. And the first atheist says, oh, so who made God? And the second atheist says, we made God. And the theist says, well, then who made us? And the first atheist says, well, evolution made us. And the theist says, well, who made evolution? And the second atheist says, well, it's, it's part of everything. Everything made evolution. And then the inquirer says, excuse me for interrupting again, but who made everything? Oh, never mind. You see, friends, no matter, no matter how, no matter how you do it, you have to come back to an absolute beginning. And there was something, no, there was someone there. And knowledge of the beginning must come from one who was there and therefore requires revelation. That is, he must reveal, he must tell us. But if this hypothesis, that there is this God who was and is there and who made the world, if it is true, then it also makes sense of the world that it started with a God who is there first. That is, we should see evidence of that in our world. And in fact, we do. For example, DNA has a code of what scientists call information that's passed on genetically. But the question you must ask is, where did the information in the DNA code come from? If God is self-existent, as the Bible says, then we already have an answer. Now, next week's message is titled, The Fingerprints of God. And we will explore the evidence that we have from science that affirms the truth of what the Bible begins with, that everything begins with the God who is there. And this self-existent God introduces himself in the very first line of the Bible, in the beginning, God. And this God created everything. And he introduces himself personally to Moses in Exodus chapter 3. And you'll remember the encounter between Moses and and God. And God is telling Moses, I want you to go to Pharaoh and I want you to command Pharaoh to let my people go from bondage in Egypt. And Moses is hesitating and he is saying, I can't do this and you know I don't have the ability. And by the way, who should I say has sent me? And here's Moses speaking to God. Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? What shall I tell them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God identifies himself as I am. I presently am, I am the self-existent one, I am the one who is and was 
and always will be. In fact, the Hebrew personal name for God in the Old Testament, the first part of your Bible, Yahweh, that name comes from the Hebrew verb of being. And so God's personal name, Yahweh, the God of Israel, is the one who is. God is self-existent. And so the Bible starts in the beginning, God. Next week, we will see evidence of the fingerprints of God. But I say secondly in your outline, God is self-existent and God is self-centered. God is self-centered. God is centered on himself. God's designs and his purposes are centered on him and what he desires. After all, he begins his revelation starting with who? With himself in the beginning, God, the God who wrote it, I, created the heavens and the earth. Now, this means practically a number of things. That God is centered upon himself. Among those things is that God was here before all other so-called gods. The true and living God was before the so-called gods were, became. We should remember in this context that Genesis was written during a time when Egyptian rule was at its zenith and the Israelites had been enslaved in Egypt for 430 years. Now, have you all ever thought about that? But the fact is, the first book of your Bible and that very first line, in the beginning God created, it was actually written by Moses. And it was written by the Moses who was a prince in Egypt and Moses who led God's people out of slavery in Egypt. So it was written 1500 B.C. Well, this is long after the creation actually occurred. And so Moses was obviously not there. No one else was there at creation other than God. And by revelation, God makes known what he did and what his intention was. And so this was written at a time when the Israelites were enslaved in Egypt. And Egypt had developed an elaborate system of gods and goddesses. And even the Pharaoh was considered to be a descendant of the gods. And part of the purpose of Genesis is to show that long before Egypt and others had created gods, God had created all things, even the things they made gods of. Birds, fish, animals. So here are the Israelites. They've been in Egypt. They've been surrounded by the god Pharaoh and the gods and goddesses of Egypt. And God now gives them this revelation. I'm the God who made all that stuff. This means that originally, contrary to what evolutionary history, that is history that assumes man evolved from lower life forms, contrary to that, religion did not begin as polytheistic, that is, many gods. But rather, it began monotheistic, one God. Humanity originally believed in one God, and this belief was manifested in many early cultures. Monotheism came before the development of polytheism. And that's documented in an excellent book called Neighboring Faiths by Winfried Corduan. We actually have that book in our resource center, and he's got a section there called Original Monotheism. Now, the fact that God gives us this revelation of himself, means that God was here before all other so-called gods. And for us, practically, here's what that means. Life is about God first and foremost. 
The priority in life is him, not what he created. Life is centered on God. The priority is God. The priority in life is him, not what he created, including, friends, us. By right of creation, God is the owner of what he has made, and what he has made, he made for his purpose, namely, to bring glory to himself. Now, practically, what's that mean for you and me? It means that my purpose is to be subordinated to his. It means that I find my fulfillment in doing his will. You say, yep, I'm down with that. I'm a Christian. I know the lingo. Everything is for the glory of God, and I'm to be about the glory of God. Yeah, I'm, I'm good with that. Well, let's test that for a moment. Are you ever angry with God? Do you have a right to be angry with God? Can the thing formed, the Bible says, say to him who formed it, why have you made it this way? Does not the potter have the right over the clay? Who are we to be angry with God and to accuse God? We may, from hearts that overflow with disappointment, ask questions of God. Lord, I don't understand. From Psalm 13, we read some of those today. But a question can be apart from accusation. Lord, I don't understand is not the same as, Lord, you should not be allowing this in my life. How many of us do that when things don't go the way we think they should go? And we violate when we do that the very first line of the Bible in the beginning. God, life is centered on God. Life is about God. And we were made for him and for his purposes. The title of this message at the top of your outline. I've titled it The Selfish Notice Gene. Nah. The Selfish God. Now that sounds sacrilegious. And of course I don't mean it that way. But I mean by that title what I'm saying in this point. That God is about himself and God is about bringing glory to himself. You say, well, isn't that selfish? The answer to that is yes. God is centered on himself and that's a good thing and we benefit from that. Here's why. Because God is the most glorious being in his universe. And as God centers all that he does on himself, his creatures benefit from that as we align ourselves with that glorious purpose. So God is self-existent and God is self-centered. And thirdly, God is self-sufficient. God is self-sufficient. Sometimes we think that God created because he was lonely. I mean, what do you do hanging around in eternity all that time? Some of you know the Christian singer and songwriter Michael Card. I've appreciated much of his music over the years very much. But in at least one of his songs, he gets it wrong. The lyrics say this, When the universe fell from his fingertips, he decided he wanted some fellowship. But the man and the woman would not submit, so he made a better way. He decided, Michael Card says, he wanted some fellowship, so that's why he made us. But Michael has forgotten what we often forget. That God has never been lonely 
Because there has been an eternal relationship between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit forever. God did not create because he was lonely or because he was needy in any other way other than his desire to see his glory, that is, his character displayed in his universe. God did not create because he needed anyone or anything to be complete. That's why when the great apostle stands before Greek philosophers in Athens, Greece, 2,000 years ago, and he preaches the gospel to them, he begins where the Bible begins, with creation. And he starts in verse 24 of Acts chapter 17, the God who made the world and everything in it. Notice what it says. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands and he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. God is not needy. God is self-sufficient. He is not dependent in any way on us. Now, friends, as you flesh that out in your Christian walk, be careful what you read and what you hear on the Christian radio because not everybody understands this. And so they present a God who needs us and a Jesus who's begging us to come to him. (laughs) We need to be begging Jesus to let us come to him. Listen, the issue is not, will you accept Jesus? The issue is, will Jesus accept you, and why should he? But God, in his marvelous glory, has made a way for that very thing to happen. The corollary of this independence of God, the self-sufficiency of God, is our complete dependence on him for life and breath and everything else. And this is why one of the chief sins listed in Romans chapter 1 that we saw last week, where although they knew God, they glorified him not as God, but rather they worshipped created things. One of the chief sins listed there, Paul says, is, and neither were they thankful. Because that thankfulness is at the heart of an understanding that all we are and all we have is dependent upon God. God doesn't need us. He allows us to serve and to worship him. So, practically, here's what that means. I don't need to help God out by compromising his commands. Friend, you never need to help God out. God will be okay. He was okay before we came on the scene. He'll be okay after we're gone. He'll be okay no matter what we end up doing. So you don't have to help him out in your individual life. So, you don't marry. In fact, you don't even date someone who does not meet his criterion for marriage. Because, see, you don't have to help God out. God tells you what to do. And then the idea is for you to do it. And to let him work out the details, whether or not those details come out to your satisfaction. And so the Bible says that you are to, 1 Corinthians 7, marry in the Lord. God says that. You say, but, you know, I want, I want a companion. And I'm not able to find somebody in the Lord. Well, then don't find somebody right now. You wait until you find somebody 
in the Lord, because that's what the Lord says. Further, when you get sick of your marriage, you don't get to opt out. The Lord says what he has brought together, let no one break apart. And that no one includes you. And God has given two exceptions, adultery and abandonment. And if the God who gave marriage tells you the kind of person you're to marriage and how long marriage is supposed to last, then you do not say to God, I'll make my own rules. God doesn't need your help in order for him to achieve the purpose for which he made the world and everything in it, namely the display of his glory. You could make all kinds of application of that in your personal life and my personal life. In our churches, hear this, friends, we don't resort to methods of attracting crowds because we think God's methods don't seem to be getting the job done adequately. God doesn't need me to help him out. Here's what God needs me to do. God wants me to do what he says. In fact, God demands that I do what he says. And what we're doing here right now today is what God says in his word to do. We worship him the way he describes, and we have the elements in that worship that he provides. That includes, by the way, the preaching of his word. So God is self-existent, and God is self-centered, and self-sufficient, and lastly, God is self-reflective. Self-reflective. As we will see as we go through this series, God makes man in his image which means humanity was made to image God, to reflect God back to God. He did that because God wants to see his reflection in his creation and to be worshipped for who he is. So the prophet Jeremiah says this, He who is the portion of Jacob is not like these. Now in the context, the these are the idols of the pagan nations. And he was the portion of Jacob, that is Israel. He who is the portion of Israel is not like these idols, for that is because he's the maker of all things. So you, Israel, you, God's people, you, Community Bible Church, as God's people, you don't need the idols, whether physical or otherwise, that the culture chases, because the true and living God made everything. Because of all of the implications of that, then he is our portion, and that word portion is our reward, our inheritance. At the end of time, in the book of Revelation, the Apostle John was given a vision of the praise of God when he consummates all that he has planned. We are starting in Genesis 1, in the beginning God created, and then that very last book shows how it all turns out at the end of time. And here's what John saw. He saw thousands and 10,000 times 10,000, and they were saying this, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. Why do we praise you this way? Why do we extol your character, the display of who you are? Because you created all things, and it was by your will that this happened. And the response of his creatures, then, is to be praise of this one who created to display his character, his glory. So God's purpose is his glory, the display of his character. And he gave Israel this book of Genesis to remind them that his purpose will be achieved for himself and for them, his people. 
Remember what I said earlier. At the time this was written, they were emerging from centuries of slavery in Egypt. And they were now forming a new nation. They needed assurance of the success of this new enterprise. And Genesis 1 accomplishes that. Old Testament scholar Alan Ross said this, The God who created Israel as his own people is the sovereign God who created the universe and all that's in it. The implications would be inescapable. Since the new nation is founded by the sovereign God of creation, the law, the customs, and the beliefs associated with it are all consonant with the plan of creation. Creation is thus the theological starting point, explaining what kind of God was establishing his theocracy and how powerful his word was in doing so. God is self-reflective, and he has made this world to reflect him back to him, and he has chosen a people of his very own to do that very thing, beginning with the people of Israel, as we will see in the months ahead. Now, that means three things that I have in your outline quickly. It means that he is our owner. He is our owner. God created, and therefore God owns, and he is in control of what he has made. So the so-called gods of the nations, since I am the creator, Israel, this new nation that I am forming, he's saying in Genesis 1 to them, the so-called gods of Egypt and the other nations pose no threat to you. I made the very things that they worship. And so he says to them in Numbers 33, the Bible says, the Israelites marched out defiantly in full view of all the Egyptians who were burying all their firstborn, whom the Lord had struck down among them, for the Lord had brought judgment on their gods. Joshua 10. When the Israelites come to the promised land and Joshua leads them there in conquest, it's another example of God's power over the gods of the Canaanites who worship the sun and the gods because God commanded the, excuse me, the sun and the moon because God commanded the sun and the moon. So this verse, this first chapter of Genesis teaches us that God is the owner. He's reflecting his creative character, his sovereign character there. And then B, secondly, he is our lawgiver. He's our lawgiver. If God made all things that others worship, if God made all the things that other people worship, then it would be foolish to have any other God besides him. That's why the very first command in the law is, you will have no other gods beside me. But the context of that is, I created everything. That's the first commandment in the law. If God made human beings in his image, then it's foolish to make an image of God. He made an image of God. We're his image bearers. And so that's why the second command is, you shall make no graven image. And the Bible tells us the universe was formed at God's command in Hebrews 11. And in Psalm 33, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, their starry host by the breath of his mouth. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. And then Psalm 148, let all creation praise the name of the Lord, for at his command they were created. Now notice what those verses say, that all things were created by the word, the command of God. And what God is saying to his people, the Israelites, as he forms this nation and gives them his law to govern that nation, is that if he created the world by speaking it into existence, then when they receive the words of his command, should not they obey? 
as all creation obeyed his word and it came to be? And can they trust that word and those commands from that God who created by his word? And of course the answer is yes. And the same question applies to you and me. Do you believe God made all things? And if God made all things by his word, then when he gives you his word, there's no question, there's no debate. We simply do what this God who made the world by his word and by his command tells us to do. Because he is that God and we can trust that God. He is our owner. He is our lawgiver and last. He is our redeemer. Our redeemer. So the Israelites are coming out of Egypt. God is forming this new nation. He's giving them his law to provide the structure for that new nation. And he inspires Moses to produce the first five books of your Bible, including this very first book, Genesis, in order to help them with all of the questions that they might have at that point in their history. And one of those is this, man, what are we going to do now? We've just come out of Egypt. We're out here in the wilderness. And now what's going to happen? And God gives them this account of creation, whereas we're going to see in the next few weeks. And the earth was without form and void. And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. And then piece by piece, God forms and fills that chaotic, unformed, and unfilled world. And to the Israelites, here's what he is, he is telling them. I make something out of what is at first nothing. I made everything out of what it was first was nothing. And guess what? You guys ain't nothing. But I can make something out of you, and I will make something out of you. I'm the God who made something out of nothing in creating the world. So Psalm 103 says, praise the Lord who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion. Now, out of all of that, what are you to take away today? Our take-home truth, I think every take-home truth we have ever had in the 13 years of this church has been some summation that I have worded as best I can at the end of the message. But this time, it is simply a passage from the Word of God. And that passage from the Word of God is... Romans 11.36, here's your take-home truth. From him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Let's ask the Lord to help us. Let's bow together. Father, thank you for your word. And thank you for the very first line, very first verse, very first chapter of your word. That sets all things in context for us. Lord, help us to be people who believe its truth, see its implications, and then make those applications to our lives, the circumstances of our lives every moment of every day. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.